You are listening to the official podcast of First Baptist Church of Cape Girardeau. We are a community of faith, hope, and love located in Southeast Missouri. For more information, visit our website at fbccape.com. I will be reading Mark 14:1 through 11. <clears throat> it was two days before the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was this ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you and you can show kindness to to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you don't already know this about me, I love superhero movies. And by the way, Batman's 80th birthday was yesterday. And I think he looks pretty good for 80, by the way. But one of my favorite movies that came out a few years ago was the movie Wonder Woman. It's the story of Diana Prince, who grows up on the legendary island of Themyscira. A pilot named Steve Trevor crashes on the island and he tells her about what is currently going on in the world and it is World War I. Diana leaves with Steve and helps form a team to try to help stop the war because Diana is convinced that the force behind this war is the Greek god Ares. And on their way to the war's front, they pass through a village that has been sieged by the German army. A woman from the village pleads with Diana to help. She tells Diana that Germans have killed most of her family and have enslaved the rest. Diana encounters a group of British soldiers who have been entrenched for over a year against the German army. And the area between the two armies is called No Man's Land. Diana says to Steve Trevor that they need to stay here and and they need to help people. And Steve says they don't have time. 
that they need to stay on mission and try to get to the front of the war. Diana says, we have to help these people. They are dying. They have nothing to eat. Steve Trevor says, Diana, I understand that, but this is no man's land. That means that no man can cross it. It's not possible. We can't save everyone in this war. This is not what we came here to do. Diana then dramatically takes off her disguise. She dons her Wonder Woman costume, and then she puts on her sword and she, her shield, and she says, no, but it is what I'm going to do. Then she climbs a ladder, and she walks into no man's land, and she draws fire from the German army, and it allows the British soldiers to advance and deliberate the village. I so would have loved to have shown you this scene, but right in the middle of it, someone says a cuss word, and I wanted to keep my job. But it's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful scene, and it happens all because Diana enters no man's land. Well, in our story for this morning that Terry just read for us, we have a woman that dares to enter no woman's land. We've been going through the last week in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. A few weeks ago, we looked at Sunday, where Jesus triumphantly enters in a counter-procession against the procession of Pilate into the city of Jerusalem. On the Monday of that week, we saw as Jesus was upset because the temple was no longer a place of transformation and welcoming, so Jesus overturned the tables as a sort of prophetic theater. And last week, we saw two passages where Jesus was sparring with the Pharisees, and specifically we saw how Jesus was calling us to rethink the role of money in our faith. And now we come to the Wednesday of this last week. We learn that Jesus is dining at the home of someone named Simon the leper. I don't imagine that was a very large dinner party at the home of Simon the leper. And it's possible that probably Simon was somebody who Jesus had healed from leprosy and the nickname had stuck the fact that Jesus is meeting in the home of somebody who had leprosy at all is pretty astounding and is pretty countercultural. Jesus is likely dining with his disciples and some other men from the community, but probably a, a smaller and smaller group of men. We need to remember that by this time, Jesus has not been making very many friends during this last week. He's been challenging both those who have been cozy with the Roman Empire and he has been accusing the temple leadership of using their position of power to take advantage of the vulnerable in the community. And now he's gathered with some men at Simon's house and in walks a woman. Can you see her walk in? Mark tells us that Jesus is reclining at the table when she walks in. Hear the, hear the hubbub of the conversation as the men debate politics and tell jokes. Hear the conversation. 
and in walks a woman. Suddenly the men stop talking, stop joking, stop chewing. Everybody is staring in stunned silence as this woman enters into this boys only crowd and walks over to Jesus. And, and, she, and she's got something in her hand as she approaches him. We don't know a lot about this woman. In fact, it's a little bit odd that she's never given a name in this story. Early church historians loved to cast this woman as a prostitute. But there's no indication in the text of that. We do the same thing to Mary Magdalene, by the way. The Bible never says that she was a former prostitute. But we're uncomfortable with females in power in Scripture. And so we cast them in odd lights. We don't know much about this woman. But the men are in stunned silence as this woman takes this object in her hand and she breaks it. And that's when they realize that this is an alabaster jar full of the most expensive perfume available. Can you hear the, the crack of the jar why break the jar, by the way? She, broke, she breaks the jar because she intends to use it all. She intends to use every single drop of this perfume in what she is about to do. It was totally customary, by the way, at this time at a dinner party for a host to offer maybe a drop or two of oil. This was the days before shampoo, after all. But never a whole bottle. Now, being a, a woman in a man's setting would have been bad enough, but what really seems to offend those gathered here is the woman's extravagance at what she does. In fact, Mark tells us that this was worth 300 denarii, an average worker's annual salary. Some of the men gathered here object to this and they say what a waste that perfume is worth so much money what is wrong with you couldn't that have been sold and then used to benefit the poor I've always wrestled with this text because I got to be honest I, I might be on their side and, and let me say that I think it's totally okay for us to somewhat agree with this or at least to wrestle with it, it does seem kind of wasteful, doesn't it? We live with that tension. If you don't live with that tension, I I'm not sure you're paying attention. We especially live with that tension in the church world, don't we? Much of what we do to facilitate worship, to offer classes for discipleship and spiritual formation, to gather together for events, to hire capable staff, all of that requires money. And if we don't have some, some tension in our hearts about spending money on the poor in our community, versus spending the money on the ministries of the church, then, then there's something wrong with us. We need to live with that tension. 
And, and now's usually the part when you might expect me to offer you an easy answer wrapped in a bow. I, I don't have that for you. It's a tension that I just want to name. I just want to acknowledge because it's part of what it means to be a community of faith that takes stewardship of our resources seriously. What I can tell you is that I hope that we as a community of faith will continue to seek the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we make decisions together about how best to use the resources that God has given to us to further the kingdom of God in our community. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Europe and uh, to see some cousins of mine who lived in Perugia, Italy. And the town that's right next to Perugia is the town of Assisi. And I'm kind of a nerd for all things St. Francis of Assisi. I've read seven biographies on him, and I find him to be a really fascinating figure. And he had this, uh, th this commitment to poverty. That's a major theme in his life. And so I asked my cousins, could we go to the Basilica of St. Francis? And they said, absolutely. And it was an incredibly odd experience. It dominates the town. It's this massive cathedral structure. And when you walk inside, there inside is the little wooden chapel of San Damiano that Francis and his brothers built together. And it is an odd juxtaposition. This massive cathedral and this small chapel. I don't have a good answer I don't have a good answer for living out that tension, but I can tell you that in that moment, that's what I felt. And I think that's what we continue to feel. And it's good for us to feel that tension. It means we're paying attention. So if we jump back to our story, Jesus responds to the people who have scolded the woman, and he says, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me, for you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. Now, I want to unpack what Jesus says here. There's two things in particular I want to point out. First, when Jesus says that she has done a good work, in the Greek, he doesn't use the normal phrase that we might think of for good work. He uses a rare phrase. The phrase is kalan ergon. And a kalan ergon was not just a generic phrase for doing something nice for somebody. It was a technical term that referred to a work that was done out of a place of pure love for God. It wasn't just something to be a goody two-shoes or something you do for attention. A kalan ergon was a sacrificial act. The early church would use, uh, use the same phrase for people who offered all that they had for the gospel. That's what they would call it when someone would give sacrificially. A kalan ergon is not just a good deed. It is an act of true worship. 
Jesus is saying here that what this woman has done is good because this woman recognizes what this whole last week is about. But there are some people who scoff. I love what N.T. Wright says in his little commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He's an Anglican bishop who's a world-famous New Testament scholar. He says this, It always happens when people decide to worship Jesus without inhibition, to pour out their valuables, their stories, their dancing, their music before him, just the way they feel like doing, that others looking on find the spectacle embarrassing and distasteful. I, who have loved the formal church music of my tradition from boyhood, know only too well the temptation to look down on other, less inhibited styles of music, which sometimes lack a certain polish, but often add a certain integrity, a certain wholeness of spirit. Not everyone is called out to pour out expensive ointment over Jesus' head, But if someone is, the rest should respect it. We should all be very, very cautious about not looking down on those who choose to worship God in a way that looks different than us. I don't want to read too much into this story, but I don't get the sense that those who were raising issues with the woman's offering were actually that concerned with the poor. To me, they seem like people who, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, know the price of everything and the value of nothing. So that's one thing, is that this woman performs an act of sacrificial worship to Christ. The second thing is this phrase. This is the second thing I want to unpack. This phrase, you will always have the poor with you. I think if I were to give you a list of maybe the most misunderstood scriptures in the Bible, this would definitely make the top three. I remember one time having a conversation with a group of people who were asking me about what I believed it meant to be a pastor and to help lead a church. I mentioned to the group that I think one of the tasks of a church is to be a place of justice for the poor and the marginalized in the community. Somebody spoke up and said, well, I I disagree. I think that we should be about worship. After all, didn't Jesus say, you always have the poor with you? The person was implying that because Jesus said this, that I guess the obligation for us to help the poor was not part of what it means to be a Christian today. I want to submit to you that I think there is much more going on here than it seems. When Jesus says the phrase, you will always have the poor with you, this this would have triggered something in the minds of the first readers of the gospel of Mark. 
chapters and verses in the Bible uh, didn't get added until centuries after the text was written. So if you wanted to reference a passage in conversation, you would quote from the passage. And that quote would imply that you're referring not just to the specific quote, but to the passage itself. And when Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you, he is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15.11 Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and the needy neighbor in your land. And in fact, if we were to read this entire chapter in Deuteronomy, this chapter is about debt cancellation for the poor. It's remarkable that Jesus would reference this passage. It's almost as though that those that scoff at this woman's act of worship are thinking of charity, and Jesus ups the ante and summons them to a much more radical act, Debt cancellation. If you want to get run out of a church, start preaching that. What Jesus is saying is that when he says that there will always be poor among us, he is saying that we have a lot of work to do. That we still have a lot of work to do. But Jesus says that this woman's specific act, by this specific woman is for a specific purpose. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. This woman seems to have an understanding of who Jesus is that has been lost on all of the men in the Gospel of Mark. And actually, that's a theme in the Gospels. Often, it is the women who have a better understanding of who Jesus is than the men who surround him. In all four Gospels, who are the people who first encounter the risen Christ? It is the women. Women fund the ministry of Jesus. Women are the first ones to encounter the risen Christ. They are the first people in the world to tell people about the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus has been dropping hints about his purpose, the whole gospel of Mark. Do you remember this exchange that we looked at back in February? Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter and the other male disciples have heard Jesus offer these hints about what he has come to do, and they tell him, hey, uh, hush up with that kind of talk. We don't want to hear that. That you have to suffer, that you have to die. We don't want to hear that. That's not what we're going to Jerusalem to do. But this woman, this woman, 
walks into a room and performs a good deed. Not just a good deed, though. A kelan ergon, an act of worship. And while we have a lot of work to do on behalf of the poor, this one act of sacrificial worship recognizes who Jesus is, where Jesus is headed, and what this whole last week is about. This woman gets it. And because she gets it, that's why Jesus says that whenever the good news is proclaimed, this woman has a part to play in the story. Because if we pay attention to the margins, often there are people on the margins who have a lot to teach us about who Jesus is. And the reason this woman will be remembered is because that's exactly what she does. She seems to understand who he is, what he's about, and what he must now do. And other people scoff. The theologian Paul Tillich said that genuine love will always appear to some as a kind of extravagant waste. As we read the story of this woman during the season of Lent, I wonder what kind of extravagant waste are you called to? I wonder what kind of worship you might be called upon to offer to God. I wonder if people, when they see what you think that is, might sneer, might turn up their noses, might wonder if you've lost your marbles. Maybe you're called to be like the woman in this story. Maybe you're called to, to cross into territory that most people wouldn't go to. Maybe you're called to worship God with extravagant, wasteful, crazy love. Maybe. The retired Methodist bishop, Will Willimon, tells a story of how he was once driving to a conference in eastern North Carolina along with a colleague who was an undergraduate professor at Duke. As he was riding along, Willimon asked the professor, Say, didn't Sarah Smith tell me that she was one of your students? The professor said, yes, yes, uh, she did. You, you know, Sarah was one of the brightest students I ever taught. She could have gone to law school or, or medical school, and I was surprised when she went to divinity school of all places. Willimon said, well, at the divinity school, we call that Operation Rescue. Willimon said, you know, I think that Sarah's church where she's pastor is just off the highway here. Would you like to go see it? The professor said, oh, I'd love to see what she's doing now. So they turned off the highway. They went past woods. They crossed over some old railroad tracks. They drove out past some trailer parks, and they saw a faded United Methodist Church sign pointing down a dirt road. They turned down the dirt road and bounced up and down on it through more trees. And finally, they turned into a little gravel parking lot of a little run-down, dilapidated, clapboard church. 
The white paint was peeling off the sides. The roof was covered with water spots. In front, a half-broken sign was dangling at a 45-degree angle. The sign read, Trinity United Methodist Church, Pastor Sarah Smith. They sat there for a moment, idling in the gravel parking lot, sitting in silence. Finally, the undergraduate professor shook his head, snorted, and said, Dang, what a waste. Willimon said that if he'd been a smarter man, his response would have been, How beautiful. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good deed and a beautiful deed for me. She, she has done what she could. Truly, I tell you, those who waste their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. May it be said of us, friends. Pray with me. God, we ask that you would help us to be people of extravagant worship. Of people who, when we recognize who you are, and what you're about and what your kingdom looks like will be people who, who pour out what we have even if others sneer at our offering. We ask that you would help us to be people who recognize that there are voices on the margins in our community who have a lot to teach us about who you are. And may we be people who listen to those voices. We ask that you would continue to guide and direct us through this season of Lent, God. That we would prepare our hearts and our minds for both the darkness of Good Friday and the light of Easter morning. In the name of the crucified and risen Christ, we pray. Amen.